When 2020 started, we thought it would be more of the same. No one could have predicted that a global pandemic would come just a couple of months later. Since then, market volatility has been at all-time highs. Unemployment has surged, and there's no question that we're in a downturn. But one prediction we made has held true. Our view was that when the next downturn hit, it would require policy coordination between central banks and governments to help the economy stay afloat. Welcome to The Bid, where we break down what's happening in the markets and explore the forces changing investing. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. Today, Jean Bovin, head of the BlackRock Investment Institute, joins us to talk about how monetary and fiscal policymakers have come together in response to the coronavirus crisis. We spoke with Jean back in January about why he believed a coordinated effort would be necessary when dealing with the next downturn. Today, we'll explore what's happened since. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you and I spoke in January, and you at that time were talking about a paper you had written that predicted that during the next economic downturn, central banks and governments would have to coordinate in an unprecedented and unusual way. And at that time, we talked about how an economic downturn was not anticipated. And so this was somewhat prescient, it turns out. Now that that's actually happened, are you surprised that the policies you wrote about have become a reality so soon? Well, we were talking about what would happen in the next downturn, and we had obviously no idea that the pandemic would be happening a few months after. So we've been certainly surprised that the events precipitated the need for a very aggressive response. We thought that the direction of travel was kind of inevitable. So in that sense, maybe not surprised, but certainly very surprised on how quickly that has materialized. Just to give you an example, we tried to write an op-ed as things were unfolding, trying to link what was happening to what we had been discussing last August. And by the time we were finishing the op-ed for publication in a newspaper, a lot of what we were describing could be happening next had already happened. So the speed at which things were happening was very surprising. Can you just remind us what the thesis was behind that original paper? Traditional tools of central banks were reaching very significant limits. So central banks, ultimately, with the toolkit that they had, were attempting to stimulate the economy, spending or investment, by lowering rates, either short-term or long-term rates. And with rates as low as they were, even last August or before the pandemic, there was not, in our view, a lot of space to get much more stimulus through this. So that's the first observation. And given that, it led to the question of what could be next. And any aspect of stimulus you can think of that do not work through lower interest rates required central banks or policy to more directly attempt to stimulate demand or put stimulus in the hands of the entities that could use it. And so any policies of that form ultimately requires some explicit coordination between central banks and governments which is exactly the revolution we've been going through over a few weeks in February and March. And so you mentioned a little bit of what happened in February and March, but can you just give us a little bit of a recap of how central banks and government came together in a coordinated way? Those of us in the U.S. watched closely what happened in the United States, but it certainly wasn't just here. No, it was literally everywhere. This shock, this pandemic was a global phenomenon. I think has created a necessity to respond very quickly, but 
to explain or unpack why we talk about a policy revolution. This revolution, I think, has a couple of key elements. So over the course of a few weeks, between February and March, we first saw an increase in central bank balance sheet, and in particular of the Fed, that was greater than the increase in the balance sheet of the Fed in the entire post-global financial crisis in 2008 period. So in five weeks, we've seen the deployment of central bank policies of a magnitude that was greater than what had been accomplished in five years after the global financial crisis. And then it's also the nature of these policies that was innovative, where we've seen central banks, and I'm going to speak to the Fed more directly here, but it's true elsewhere, have basically deployed facilities that are aiming at lending more directly to the private sector or to entities rather than going through the traditional banking sector transmission. So it's less true bank, more directly through some even mainstream entities, even states. So that's the third element of the evolution, which we've been labeling as going direct as a sort of short end. But it's really about more directly trying to put liquidity in the hands of the entities that are cash constrained. So the three elements, speed, size, and then this very significant innovation of going direct. And you had talked in January about this innovation of going direct and your anticipation that it would be needed. Do you think this has worked? Well, the jury is still out. I think it has definitely worked in terms of creating the impression of a very decisive response where central banks and governments are ready to do whatever it takes. It has certainly, in an impressive fashion, calmed market. I mean, when you think about it, market were down as much and as quickly as we had seen in 2008 during the global financial crisis when we were in February and March. And now we've rebounded very significantly from these lows. So we had like a 35% decline. Now over the second quarter of this year, we have a 18% rebound in global equity indices. So in that sense, it has worked. But the jury is still out because it's one thing to announce big plans. It's one thing to start to try to deploy them. But we need to ensure that the actual liquidity finds its way to the entities that need it. So we have, for instance, programs to support unemployed in the U.S., Not everybody is able to reach the program. That's true in Canada, that's true in other places as well. And before we see the full execution, I think we need to reserve the judgment of whether it has worked. But I think in terms of building confidence, certainly it has worked. And I think we are seeing money flowing already in some key places. So signs that it is working, but need to keep an eye on execution. There's no question that money is flowing, as you suggested, but there's been a lot of criticism as to whether it's flowing to the right recipients especially in the U.S., perhaps, whether the recipients of PPP funds or even the fact that corporations largely receive these funds was the right response. What do you make of that? One observation I would make is the speed is unprecedented. Over the course of a few weeks, big decisions and facilities have been put in place. It is, I think, unrealistic to expect that Money, as a result, has been targeted exactly where it's needed. I think the approach here has been more about, okay, let's be decisive. Let's make sure that we go in as many directions as productive as possible. And I think the question going forward would be what kind of recalibration is needed to ensure that we don't get excess support in places that it could lead to misallocation of resources. At the same time, ensure that we don't see the appearance of very significant cash constraint and balance sheet pressure in other places that could build up into something more systemic. So it's another version of my execution is key now. Execution is about not only making the money flow, but making it flow to the right place to the point of your question. Now that we've deployed all this capital, what do you see as some of the risks of the approach that we've lived through? I think 
The first thing is risks are not the first thing to do is to provide a bridge to the economy that is facing a very significant health crisis, the solution of which is to stop the economy. And that is creating a big economic hole that needs to be bridged. So I guess first point I want to make clear is that, yes, there will be risk and I'll come to the risk now, but those risks are a question for tomorrow or for next week or for next year. But once we get to tomorrow, next week or next year, given the speed at which these measures have been deployed, I think there's important governance questions around how central banks and government interact that have not been fully resolved or even addressed. So in the heat of the urgency of trying to deal with the situation, the importance of responding quickly was the dominant objective and for good reasons. But we will need to reconcile at some point what interaction and governance issues this raises with central banks and government's interaction. And there's a lot to unpack here, but to make that more concrete, a lot of the measures that have been taken have a feature of being a combination of monetary policy, which is the policy of the central banks, and budgetary or fiscal policy, which is the tool of the government. And those have been kind of mixed together in these facilities. This is the coordination innovation that I was talking about before that we thought would be inevitable. But coordination means joint decision-making. And without a clear framework on how these decisions will be made jointly, it leaves unclear who is going to have the final say on which part of these policy tools. And where this could become a problem is in a scenario where, again, this is not for today, it's not for next week, and it might not be for next year, but at some point, the economy will recover. And if we're in a world where inflation starts to reappear, and with all of the stimulus that has been put in place and big deficit, it It is a scenario that we need to entertain seriously. Inflation at some point could reappear. And at that point, central bank will be facing a tougher decision choice between reducing the stimulus that has been put in place in order to contain inflation, but at the same time, removing a spending tool for the government, which is very attractive for government. It's always easier to spend than to stop spending. And that decision will now even be more difficult because it's going to be related explicitly to the inflation outlook. So we have a more complex tension trade-off. And before the crisis, there was a clear framework where central banks, when inflation was under threat, central banks had the independence to remove the stimulus in place. That independence now is less clear. Another related risk is the strength of institutions. We've been building for 40 years strong central bank frameworks that were anchored in an ability to target inflation in an independent way. And now by having these coordinated policies, it raises a question that maybe central banks will become more politicized or the political side of things will play a bigger role in determining interest rate and central bank decision. So inflation is a risk and the more institutional framework is also at risk of weakening without some ways of addressing this. To what extent are you also worried about the deficits accumulating as a result of this approach? That's been the case ever since the global financial crisis in the U.S. and in several other markets. Do you just think that we have enough to deal with now and that's a problem for the future? Or should fiscal policymakers be addressing it today? So again, I'm going to start at the same place because it's important. The risks are kind of irrelevant to deal with the current situation. We need to deal with this first. And in fact, the best way to minimize the risk I'm concerned about is to make sure the economy recovers as quickly as possible. But yeah, those deficits are meaningful. I mean, we haven't seen deficit spending like this in peacetime. It's not even comparable to the global financial crisis, fiscal stimulus and spending we've seen. So the increase in debt is very significant. And let 
to its own device at some point could create some tensions. You know, right after the global financial crisis, very significant current spending were put in place. And it didn't take very long. I mean, in 2010 was two years after where government became very nervous about the increased debts that they were facing. And we saw a very significant move globally towards austerity. The narrative has changed. Now we have even bigger, large deficit and debt increase. Nobody is currently worried about what the debt will mean, and nobody's talking about austerity anytime soon. But at some point, that could come back on the table. And so a couple of the risks you can see as a result, one is we move back to austerity too quickly and we undermine the stimulus we've put in place. I don't think this is a big risk, but 2010 was a mistake in that sense. We went too quickly back to austerity. If we wait too long to deal with the debt, we might see pressure on interest rate to go up because, I mean, investors at some point will start to question whether it makes sense to lend to government for nothing or even to be paying for lending to government with negative rates when the debt is so high. And to prevent that, I think central banks, as a result, will need to be more actively trying to prevent rates to go up. But if they do that, that goes back to the inflation risk that I was worried about. I would say the last risk I would flag and one that I'm more concerned about is now that we've put on the table these new tools where it looks like you can, and it's not true, but it looks like you can basically spend on presented amount and then try to use central bank liquidity or money to finance it, which is kind of the impression some people have. It opens the door for people to say, well, why don't we do that also in normal times? And the big deal question here is once this genie is out of the bottle, how do you put that back in? And we are seeing a lot more people making those kinds of arguments. So that is a risk in the absence of guardrails that hopefully we will put in place at some point. And what might those guardrails look like? What action or indicators do you think can be put in place? We need to set some rules that define when this kind of unusual policy revolution tool can be used and when should we exit from them. So that's really what we mean by putting guardrails. It's like the rules of the game rules of engagement. So we know now we can use them. If we get in a world where people believe we can use that anytime and all the time, that cannot be true. There's no free lunch. We cannot just print money out of our spending. So the question is going to be, how do we put a limit to this in an exit? Right now, those have not been defined. I mean, all we have is that central banks still have inflation targets, but they haven't specified exactly how that's going to play or inform their decision on how to remove those new tools. And we haven't also defined how the government will allow central banks to remove these tools, given that there's an element of government policy that is involved in there. So what would be needed to clarify this is, you know, a joint agreement between central banks and government to say, for instance, that these tools can be used as long as inflation is under control and not expected to go above target systematically. And that once we see inflation starting to increase or expected to be running above target, in those instances, the central bank will have the ability by itself to start removing or exit from these tools. So that would be an example of a framework that specifies under what circumstances we would be starting to exit from these unusual tools and who is in charge of making that decision. And again, I want to reiterate It's not the issue of the moment, and the best thing we can do right now is to make sure we recover as quickly as possible in terms of economic activity. That's why government and central banks have been focusing on this first task. Once this is under control, I think it would be welcome to clarify these guardrails. So what's your current thinking about how long this downturn will last? 
And what indicators are you looking at as to whether we're moving out of it? The stock market and equity markets have recovered, at least for now, but so much of the impact of the last several months is still with us. So what are you looking to and how long do you think it's going to last? I've realized over the last few weeks that as soon as you say we're going to come out of this and you put a date, no matter the date you put in, you look like you're optimistic about the situation. So I'm just prefacing that because I think our viewer, like if you just look at the range of forecasts out there, on the most bearish side of things, we're talking about going back to the level of activity we were before the shock by the end of 2021. This is a shock that means it's going to take two years to get out of it. It's not only in a couple of quarters. That said, I want to make clear as well that even though this is a big shock, it's very concentrated in time. So our view is that the worst of it is behind us. It was April. And so while it's going to take, you know, until the end of 2021 to get back to where we were, we're already on that upward trajectory from this point onward in our view. Of course, there's risk. We could get reinfection that could slow this down, but we already started to be on a recovery path. And a third big point to our view is that even though it's a big shock, unprecedented, April will have seen like the biggest contraction in peacetime or even since the Great Depression. We will, at the end of it, see a cumulative impact or shortfall economic cost of this shock that will be still a fraction of what the global financial crisis cost was. The global financial crisis was a shock that basically led to a downgrade of growth or activity for a decade after. This led to the slowest recovery since the Great Depression. This time around, it's still going to be about a third to a half of what the cost of the global financial crisis was. So the three points, just to reiterate, it's going to take about a couple of years to really work through this shock. Uncertainty around that is important, but I think that's a good benchmark. Point number two is that this is a very significant shock in the near term, very profound and cannot be underestimated, but we are already recovering from it. And the third point is that despite all of this, it still is not comparable yet to what the global financial crisis was and helps to gauge what kind of price reaction you should expect to see overall as a result of this. So then what does all this mean from an investor point of view? Ah, well, that's a big question, but let's break that down into a couple of key teams. Let's first talk about the strategic, more longer term horizon. The fact that this shock is not of the magnitude of the global financial crisis, I think gives us an anchor for people with a more strategic horizon to see opportunities in the repricing we've seen after the shock. So we should expect a global financial crisis kind of price move for risk asset. As a result of this, in February and March, when we saw a very significant move, we thought there were strategic opportunities to go overweight equities or risk asset more broadly. Now we've rebounded from this, so there's a bit less opportunity than there was because of a very significant rebound. But broadly speaking, I think that leads us to be pro-risk on a strategic basis in portfolios and looking to maintain the stance as a general statement. Another implication for investments is that the policy revolution is leading to an even lower rate environment. In fact, rates being closer to the lower bound across the entire yield curve and in many countries. And I think that starts to reduce or question more fundamentally the role of government bonds in portfolios. We don't expect them to play as important a ballast role as they have historically. The inflation risk that we've touched on, I think, also leads to think carefully about getting inflation protection on a strategic basis in portfolios. I think it leads to other key implications as well around how we think about the long-term impact of the shock. So it's not only about dealing with the health crisis, but this is changing behavior. 
this is accelerating some trends that we've been already see playing out before the shock. We're going to see maybe an acceleration of digitalization going forward. The way we travel, the way we work, there's a lot of teams that are emanating from this, which are not pure, simple asset allocation team, but I think will be important for investors to think hard about and trace going forward. If I may bring that on to more tactical horizon, I think that led us to a few things. The very significant policy revolution in the near term is, to our mind, very positive for credit. And so we've been overweight credit for a few months. Don't fight central banks, I think, is a powerful tagline for this. We have seen, up until recently, more opportunities in regions where we saw more aggressive policy response, which was leading us to be more positive on the U.S. and China. And so these are tactical teams that have been appearing. So in short, there's a lot to consider, and it's still an evolving story. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today, Sean. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. 
the provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.